We're good. All right, if we can find our seats, we'll get ready to get started. This might drive me crazy. I'm not doing it. It's a new mic, and it's it's my fur, yes. So if I just bobble my head, that'll make it nice and annoying. All right. I can also talk loud. I got quiet. That was very impressive. It's almost eerily quiet, right? Uh, we are continuing in our introduction to Mark, and we're looking into this uh, incredible gospel account. It is very vastly different from the other gospel accounts. There are a lot of things in it um, that are, are just different, you'll see, as we walk through it. Um, super excited about it as I've been studying it. I, I uh, have just grown to appreciate it even more. So if you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 28. So if you would turn there and then stand with me as we read through this. Mark chapter 1, chapter 1, starting at verse 16 through verse 28. Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 16. It says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him, and going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. We thank You for a time to gather and to study Your Word, to be encouraged and challenged by it. And Father, I pray that You would speak truth to us today, that we might leave here exhorted and encouraged and challenged. And Lord, I pray that Your Gospel would be proclaimed not just here, but throughout this country, throughout this world. And so, Father, we thank You and we praise You. We pray in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Please be seated. So there's a lot of stories that we're going to cover, multiple stories at a time. And, and at first you might glance and see and ask the question, how are they connected? Um, but I think that there is always a reason, no matter which Gospel account you read, there's a reason for the stories and the orders that they're in. They weren't placed there uh, just randomly in a specific way. And Jesus always did everything for a specific purpose. And so anytime you walk through a different story, they are 
for a reason. Jesus never did anything without a reason. And so last week we kind of looked at an introduction, but also um, we mentioned that one of the primary purposes of the Gospel of Mark is to establish the kingship of Jesus, that He is the Son of God, that He is the King. And so last week we looked at really what you could call the King's coronation. That He was heralded in by John the Baptist, and then He was anointed and, and, and baptized by John as an identification that He is the King of Kings. Well, this week we're going to kind of transition from that, from a King's coronation to a King's confirmation. And I'll be impressed if next week if Travis can come up with something that starts with a C to identify the King. But uh, I don't know, uh, I haven't looked at that text thoroughly yet, but the King's confirmation. Because you'll notice what we're going to, look at is the first thing is we have these four guys that Jesus calls to come with him and then he goes into Capernaum and the reality is that all of this text confirms both to those who see it but especially to those four individuals the reality that Jesus is king. And so I want to look at walk through the text we're going to walk through the story and I think there's three things that I'm going to kind of point out because I like to alliterate, Um, but the first thing we want to look at is a call. The story of this king begins with a call to four men, two sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew and James and John, and they would become part of his entourage, if you want to call it that. So I want to look at this call, and I think there's three things about this call specifically that I want to point out, and there's some application in each one, and we're just going to kind of walk through this. And, and, and remember, last week we kind of talked about Mark is very different. His gospel account is shorter than Matthew and Luke's. Uh, John takes kind of a different approach to a lot of it. John is coming from more of a theological standpoint, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are more or less telling the story that has a lot of theological truth in it. But Mark is, as described by many commentators, anybody, if you start looking at their description of Mark, he's very rough. It's very abrupt. He doesn't go into a lot of details. And so, actually, in this account of of uh, the calling of the first disciples, uh, Mark is a very much, he's a lot shorter and condensed than Matthew and Luke. So if you want to find out, there's more to the story. Uh, I believe it's Luke chapter uh, 6. There's more to the story of what's going on. And I would encourage you, by the way, if you don't have one, to find a good harmony of the Gospels. A lot of times they'll have uh, uh, all Uh, usually it's the three accounts, not necessarily John, but sometimes they'll include John, but they'll go through and do a side-by-side, and you can get a bigger picture of the whole story. And I'd encourage you to find something like that um, because they're really good as you walk through. There's more to the story sometimes. But the first thing we're going to walk through, it says, is passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Stop there for a minute. The first thing I want us to notice in this call is his, meaning Jesus' choice. His choice. 
The text tells us that they were casting their nets, and I love kind of the, the uh, in my mind, a little bit of redundancy. It says casting their nets, for they were fishermen. I mean, I could kind of conclude that if they were casting nets, they were probably fishermen. But for some reason, uh, I think an important reason, we have an identity of who they were. They were fishermen. His choice was that they were fishermen. By the world's standards, this choice was absolutely terrible. He was the King of kings, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, and He walks on earth and He's getting ready to start His ministry of of calling men into the kingdom of God and He starts with fishermen. Understand, fishermen, zero religious training. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, after they, uh, uh, Peter preaches this incredible sermon that, that many come to the, to the Lord, um, they call Peter into the synagogue and say, we, we want to know where you get this authority. How are you teaching this? Why are you teaching this? And it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, one of my favorite verses in Acts, it says that they were amazed at the words of Peter because they saw that these men were unlearned, unschooled, Men. And the Greek literally means they were idiots. It's idioma. They were idiots. So they were amazed because these men were speaking bold and powerful things and amazing things. But they were amazed because they saw them and they looked at them and they said, these guys are idiots. Jesus picked these men. Fishermen with no religious training. Not only did they have zero religious training, they had no lineage In a day and age where when you call men into the priesthood, they had to be of the family line of Levi. These men were not of that family line. They had zero qualifications. They were fishermen. And if you read through the Gospel accounts, most of the time you can see that these disciples had no common sense, too, for the most part. I mean, I think through stories that make me chuckle every time I read them, like when Jesus gets into the boat after they have just fed the 5,000, Jesus gets in this boat and they start crossing and Jesus says, hey guys, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. You know what they say? Oh no, he's talking to us because we forgot to bring bread again. Or how many times did Peter say something and, 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 and completely forget what Jesus had just said? Or, or how many times did Jesus say, I'm trying to get this into your thick skulls and you can't comprehend what I'm trying to teach you? Understand his choice. They were fishermen, highly unqualified, and by the world's standards, it was a terrible choice. But then he goes on and says that he saw these men, these fishermen, and Jesus says to them his conditions. Follow me. Follow me. They understood what this meant. Don't mistake, sometimes if we do this, don't mistake this as a random first meeting of Jesus with these men. Don't mistake this is the first time Jesus met them. That Sometimes we read the, the Gospel account where Jesus comes and it says, follow me, and we think, man, these guys just met this guy out of the blue that he walked by and they suddenly hear him. No, they knew Jesus. In fact, we're told that James, 
uh, and John were the daughter or the sons of Salome, who was actually the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. They were cousins. They knew Jesus. They grew up in the same place. They had seen Jesus. And if you jump into John's account of the introduction of uh, Jesus with the disciples, you'll find that that Andrew and uh, uh, Simon or Andrew and, and John were actually disciples of John the Baptist. And and Jesus walks by and John the Baptist says, hey, guys, behold, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And he actually gives them permission to go follow Jesus and find out more about him. So then they go and they find Jesus. They introduce themselves. They go and they talk to him. And Andrew goes back and finds Peter. And he says to Peter, we have found the Messiah. And then uh, he takes Peter back to Jesus. And they spend the whole day with Jesus. And then they go back for some reason. At some point in time, there's a span of we don't know how long. They go back to fishing. And now Jesus is ready to start his ministry. He comes alongside. He sees Jane, or, uh, 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 Peter and, and Andrew, and he says, come follow me. And they knew what that meant. Follow me, it had meaning. To them it meant it is time to start. Now, they may have misunderstood his concept of starting and this the kingdom is at hand because they probably thought here comes the Messiah to conquer the Romans and to give us our freedom but they would later understand what it meant. His conditions, notice, follow me. It, 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 it's interesting that John is, or Mark is very specific, first of all, telling us what they were, but also what they were doing. They were casting their nets, and, and, and uh, uh, James and John were mending nets, what they were doing, and then it tells us what they did. And if you remember last week, we said, that one of Mark's favorite words is the word immediately. And if you keep that in mind when you read through the Gospel of Mark, it will blow your mind how many times he uses that terminology. Even in this first section, he uses it over and over again. Immediately. Because there's a sense of urgency. And his conditions were, leave it and follow me. His choice, by the world's standards, terrible. His conditions, follow me. But what I love about this text most is his commitment. Notice what Jesus says to these guys. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Note the specific words of Jesus. I. Jesus was going to do it. Not some special teachings, not some programs, not some fancy uh, delivery of sermons, not anything but Jesus. And that is the reality when God comes into our lives and He says, follow me and I will change you. So oftentimes we think that we need something special, some some book to help us get through something, some... some, Whatever it is, the reality is the only way we are transformed. So he says, I, Jesus is going to do it. We don't need special teaching from Pastor Nate. We don't need special teaching from any individual. It's Jesus. And if we look anywhere else, we will not be radically changed. Second, he says, we'll make you. I will make you. It is a promise, a guarantee. I will make you. Let that sink in. 
That when we follow him, he will make you. Have you ever had Jesus not fulfill a promise? No, and you never will. And then third, he says, become fishers of men. And I want you to consider that. Become fishers of men. They weren't now, but they will be. They weren't now. When Jesus came to them, they were, by the world's standards, terrible choice, but they will become fishers of men. This is a transformation and a new identity. What they were, fishermen, what they will be, fishers of men. When I started training for the Spartan race that I did, as I have affectionately called it, that stupid race, um, I was swimming one day, so the first thing I tried to do was learn how I figured swimming was a good exercise. And I thought I was doing pretty well until one day when I started swimming some laps and I was a terrible swimmer and I noticed to my right I was being passed. And I'm going to show how sexist I am sometimes. I was being passed by a woman, which I thought, man, my pride started getting into me getting in the way, but then it got even worse because when she got out of the pool, I noticed she was pregnant. Yeah, let that sink in, right? But I had been training and training and training, and I bet I could beat her now, so I'm waiting to see her again at the Y, and then I'm going to smoke her. Yeah, she's probably giving birth to the baby, and she's leaving faster now, but... But what amazes me about this passage is what they were and what they will be. If you need proof of the kingship and the power of Jesus, you start with these men. Fishermen who changed the world. The end result was they became spiritual giants that turned the world upside down. And here's my first takeaway from this passage. Jesus doesn't need your experience. He doesn't need your education. He doesn't need your social status to use you for his kingdom work. If you will follow him, he will make you become fishers of men. And if there is no power in your ministry, it is probably because of a lack of willingness to follow him. That is a reality. These men were not spiritual giants until they encountered Jesus. One of the reasons I love that verse in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says that they were unlearned, unschooled men, but they were amazed at them. Why? Because they had seen and they saw, they perceived, they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. Because Jesus transforms. When it comes to call in life, when it comes to ministry calling, we don't need, you know, we have such an emphasis in our churches today, especially in America. Well, where's your seminary degree from? Where's your training? Where is this and that? And those things, by the way, are not bad things. They are good things, but they are not the essential necessity for godly men and women in ministry. A relationship with Jesus is. That's what we should take away from this. He comes and he finds his first four uh, men, his entourage, his court, that he is going to disciple and he's going to prepare them. And what does he do? He says, come follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And then it says that they went into Capernaum. 
Next, the king wants to confirm to these men who he is. Note what the text says. It says, and they went into Capernaum. Sometimes I read this passage, and sometimes I think we read passages like this, and we forget who the pronouns are reflecting. And I think the pronoun here is very important because we need to know who they is because it's important on what the context and what the point of this text is. It says, and they, who is they? It's Peter, James, John, Andrew, and Jesus. Okay? Because sometimes we read in the story that they went into the synagogue and then we start including everybody that's in the synagogue. And I think they probably had similar reactions, but the important point of the story is Peter, James, John, and Jesus. Okay, So they went into the synagogue in Capernaum and look what happens. I'm going to go through this in seven points, okay? It says that they went into Capernaum, and I want you to see, first of all, a priority. It says immediately, immediately. And I know we've used uh, uh, the, the idea that immediately is used a lot, and it is here because it has a point of urgency. So when Jesus gets to Capernaum, what does he do? The first thing he does, goes into the synagogue. Why? Because he wants to address the religious rule of what's going on in that country. He's come to do kingdom work. And so he's going to go and, and go right to the religious rule to establish something. And we're going to see what that something is. And then it says that after he goes in, he was teaching. He was teaching. So there's a priority. There's a preaching that's going on. And it is a preaching that these people had never seen or heard before. Notice what they say. It says, and they were astonished. Again, who's they? Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. I always forget Andrew because you always remember Peter, James, and John because they were in a sailboat. Some of you got that. Uh, and they were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. I was telling my wife this week, there are some phrases in this section of Scripture that astonish me. That just kind of stick out that, you, you know, as you're reading things and as you're reading for thought and you're writing things down, you notice some things. And this is the first one that I notice. It says they taught that he taught as one who had authority and how? Not as the scribes. Not as the scribes. So how did the scribes teach? Because Jesus taught different. And here's what Jesus did. He went in and he proclaimed the word. And he probably, and we can find from other accounts where Jesus teaches in the synagogue, he probably used illustrations. He probably used uh, uh, Old Testament over and over again. He, he talked about new things that they wouldn't have understood. But most important, I believe, was that he used the word. And what did the scribes do then? How is it that Jesus taught so different in such a way that these men were astonished at him? Not just, wow, that's different. They were astonished. They were shocked. You don't just throw out the word astonished unless it was something dramatic. Well, I'll tell you what they did. They held reign, the religious leaders, but it was never real. They read the Talmud, which had replaced the Word of God, which is oral traditions, various things that they had made up Piles upon piles of regulations and rules, but they did not teach the Word, and it was never personal. It was never real. And so here comes this man that, that walks in and begins to say things like, Today, this 
word from the Old Testament is fulfilled. And it was astonishing because he taught with authority. He taught them the word. And let me tell you something. Without the word, there is no authority or power. And we can have the word, but without Jesus, there's no power either. So there's a preaching that he does, but then it goes on. It says uh, that they were astonished. And then this uh, second phrase that blows my mind is it says, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Pause. Because not only is there a priority of Jesus in, in the confirmation and establishing something, there's a preaching that he does that blows people away, but there's a perversion right away. Did you, did you catch it? It says, a demon was in their synagogue. It says, in. How does a demon get in the place of worship? But perversion. What was the perversion? How did this happen? Not only how did this happen, but how did nobody notice? I mean, did you just ignore it? Hey, that man's got a demon, because it was clear, apparently, to people that he had a demon. So I don't know exactly what he did or how he showed or manifested that, but there was some sort of clarity that there was a demon-possessed individual in the synagogue. And my question is, how does nobody notice it, or how does nobody do anything about it? Or did they just not care? Had they become complacent, comfortable with what the world was going on? Had they lost sight of the reality of what they were trying to do in the synagogue? God, which was have a relationship with the Father. I'll tell you how that happens. It happens when there is no authority of Jesus. It happens when the Word of God does not hold authority in our life. We give place for the enemy. It happens when we begin to become complacent in things. It happens when we walk into our place of worship and it is rote and ritual, but no relationship. We give place to the enemy. And the church without the authority of Jesus is a foothold for darkness. But then it goes on, it says, so there's this perversion, and then it says, and immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Fourth, there is a perception. A perception is that even the demon recognized some facts about Jesus that those present did not. Think about it. The religious leaders who had studied the Old Testament in order to, to look forward to the Messiah coming and in walks the Messiah and they could not recognize him, but the enemy did. They missed him. But the enemy did not. And the enemy acknowledges two things. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He recognizes his kingship. And the second thing that I thought was interesting, he says, have you come to destroy us? So the enemy recognizes the kingship of Jesus, that he is God Almighty, but he also recognizes his power, that he had power over sin and darkness, and that he could destroy the enemy. And sometimes I wonder, when we walk in our churches and there is little to no power because there is no recognition of Jesus, I wonder, does the enemy know and have more faith in the power of Jesus than 
the church. Fifth, a power. Notice what Jesus does. It says, Jesus rebukes him and says, be silent and come out of him. He rebukes and commands the demons, and the demon tries. You'll notice what the demon does. In his rebellion and his resistance, he tries to not be silent, and he tries to hold on with all his might, but he couldn't. He comes out, and then we're left with a puzzle. You like this? I'm going on with my peas. I'm pretty good at this. A puzzle. Because after the demon comes out, it says that they were all amazed. So that they question among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. What is this? New teaching with authority. When they see a demon cast out of their place of worship, they say, what is this? A new authority, a teaching with authority. How impotent was the church the synagogue in those days when they could not cast it out. But they allowed it in, and they let it manifest itself, and they let it dwell among themselves. And in comes Jesus, and he says, no. They saw a reality that Jesus wasn't just a teacher, but this was all real, and it wasn't just empty words. Brothers and sisters, it's not enough to be religious, but to have the power of Jesus. Because there's a principle as well. A new teaching with authority. Notice what it says here. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. He commands, they obey. All authority that even his enemies must obey. And this becomes important because as we talk about calling and we talk about confirmation, that when the Lord calls us, understand this, that when he commands... You can run all you want, but it won't matter. Just ask Jonah. Ask Saul of Tarsus. And when he calls and when he beckons, they must obey. And then it says, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So Jesus walks in with a principle of I command, they obey. Because why? He went into the synagogue where the religious leadership was to point out that the reality is he is king and he was going to confirm it. So there's a confirmation. I think there's also three caveats that we want to take away from these two stories that we should consider and then get into an application. Number one, his rule. He is king. And his commands are to be obeyed and ultimately will be. When we start talking about Jesus, when we look at the gospel account of Mark, Mark wants to lay out for us the Son of God, that he is king and that he has every right to issue commands and they are to be obeyed and they will be obeyed. In fact, we are told in Philippians chapter 2 in this incredible passage, this anthem of of. Jesus, that at the end of the anthem it says that God would highly exalt him at his name and it will be uh, above all names and that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow and that is a direct reality. There's no resistance to it. That one day every tongue will confess, every knee will bow because he has ultimate authority, because he is the king. 
There's also a reality. His reality is his call on your life is perfect. His call on your life. Some of us here today sit and struggle with one of the greatest questions in our life. What is God's call for my life? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to do it? What am I supposed to do in preparing for it? Here's a reality. That his call is perfect for your life, and it is not dependent on your skill set. His call for your ministry, because we were all given a ministry, is perfect, and it is never dependent on your skill set. Because if we read what he says, he says, follow me, and, and, and really what it comes down to is, am I willing to do that? And he promises, I will make you become. I will make you become. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Paul, in talking about a struggle of a thorn in the flesh, he's told the words of Jesus because so oftentimes we say, well, I can't do that because I'm not gifted or talented to do that. I can't do that. Jesus looks at Paul and he says, my grace is sufficient. I am made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Third, his redemption. If you are willing, he will redeem you and give you a new identity. What a beautiful thing. As we walk through this passage, there's, there's the idea that God has come in the flesh. He is pointing out his rule. He's pointing out the reality that he will make you, and he is pointing out his redemption, that I will transform you. 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. They were fishermen. They will now become fishers of men, spiritual giants to transform the world. So as we wrap this all up, as I was studying, I walked through all this, I thought about it, and I thought to myself, so where is grace and the gospel in all this? Because when we read through the gospel accounts, we better be finding God's grace and we better be finding the gospel. And I think it's beautiful. Grace is in his call, his cure, and his confirmation in this text. He calls us his bride and he makes us his sons and daughters even though we aren't worthy. You can find it in constant verse after verse in, in Paul's writings and in the writings of John when he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God and so now we are. Paul says, We have not been given a spirit of bondage to slavery but we have been given a spirit of freedom, a spirit whereby we can call out Abba, Father, because we are now His sons and daughters. And we were far from worthy. That's His grace, that He would look upon people that did not belong, that were cast outs, that were by the world's standards, terrible choices, and say, my children. That's His grace. What a beautiful thing. 
His grace is seen in his cure. It says uh, that he cures the man with the demon, the unclean spirit. He casts him out, and we know very little to nothing about this man, and we, we don't see anything afterwards about him. Maybe he became one of those who followed Jesus around. Maybe he went around and proclaimed, this is what I was, and this is how I am now. This man did not deserve the cleansing of Jesus, and yet Jesus says, my grace is sufficient. I offer it. He cures us from death within by casting out the darkness in our own lives. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Not that we deserved any of that, but then he says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's his grace. His grace is that he confirms us by his Holy Spirit's anointing with power and authority. You realize that when Jesus calls his disciples together for one last instruction in Matthew chapter 28, he says this incredible phrase that I think we read over so many times. Jesus says, all authority on earth and in heaven has been given to me. Now go. In other words, I give you authority to go and proclaim the truth, the reality that you might make disciples of every nation. His authority, he anoints and confirms upon his followers and says, now go and be my witnesses. The gospel is here in his kingship that he was king. And he has power to command and conquer darkness. And he has done it. What an incredible thing. And now he calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. What are we waiting for so oftentimes? He commands, follow me. He commands, follow me. We, we shy away from things. I was at Starbucks studying the other day as I was writing the sermon. A guy walks up to me and he goes, huh, you got a Bible there. It's like, yeah. Are you studying for something? I said, yeah, I'm a pastor. I'm just studying for my sermon for Sunday. And you got to understand, we, we have uh, wrongly a lot of times, at least I do, preconceived ideas based on how a person looks. And this guy was a little unique. He had green hair. And he worked at Starbucks. He was on the clock. And he goes, where are you a pastor at? I said, uh, Highland Gospel Community. He goes, oh, I know that church. I was like, you do? He goes, yeah, I've got some friends that go there. I won't call you out right now in case you know him. He goes, can I pray for you right now? I was like, no, no, that's okay, no thanks. No, of course. I was like, yes, sure. And it was so sweet. This guy on the clock pauses, doesn't care what his coworkers think, doesn't care what could potentially happen. He says, lays his hand on my shoulder, and he starts praying this beautiful prayer about making sure that the Lord reveals the Scripture and opens it up, and it was just really sweet. And I wonder how many times we miss opportunities like that because we're afraid of something. But he commands, and he calls. He says, come follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. We have power in the King's name. We have confirmation in the king's name. He commands and they obey. 
And I don't want us to walk out of here thinking that, well, we have a sovereign God who just dictates to us because it is his good pleasure to tell us what to do. Because if that's how we think, then we've missed grace in the gospel. The grace in the gospel is this, that he comes in and he commands the darkness within to leave, and it does. And the grace is that we don't deserve it, and he still chooses to do it. So he beckons us this morning, as he does his disciples, those first four men, and I applaud their reaction, and sometimes I covet and wish that that was my reaction all the time, but I am reminded that they were men, and they still failed from time to time. But come follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reality that you are king. That you do not shy away from confronting sin and darkness. And Lord, you come to us today and you ask us to follow you. And if there are some in here today that have never followed you, that have never put their hope and trust in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross, Lord, I pray that today we would recognize our sin I pray that today we would realize that your beckoning, come follow me, means to cast off the weight of sin and darkness. To repent, to say, I no longer desire to go that way. And I can't do it apart from the work of Jesus Christ. That you lived a life here on earth in the flesh and blood, that you might be a partaker with us, that you can sympathize with us when we struggle. That you faced down temptation and you defeated it. That you faced sin and you conquered it. And then you said, I will take upon myself the punishment of all mankind that they deserve. And one incredible word that we read, that it pleased the Father to bruise the Son. To pour all of His wrath upon one who was undeserving so that we who deserved would never receive it. That you laid in a grave, but it was not the end. You rose on the third day, conquering sin and death, and now you declare to all who would believe, all who would repent and turn to you and say, I need Jesus, and we have hope eternal. So Lord, as you beckon us, come follow you. I pray that our hearts would yearn to walk after you, our King. We love you. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.